fight And we don't have to kill Everybody in the whole wide world Really just needs to chill No, we don't have to fuss No, no, no We don't have to fight Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Just Chill with Oliver George. This is episode number 53, and my guest this week is an extremely insightful man. He's an emotionally focused therapist with a master's degree in counseling psychology, amongst many other amazing accomplishments. Uh, so suffice to say, I learned a ton from this episode and from our chat, as I often do from these great conversations that I'm lucky enough to be privy to doing this show. But before we sink our teeth into this conversation, I wanted to acknowledge a couple of things. First of all, pandemic hair, don't care. Uh, but second of all, more importantly, if you're watching on YouTube, you might have noticed this free space I now have in front of me. That's because the plexiglass barrier is now a thing of the past. It, uh, if you follow the show, you might know that last summer was when it first went up. There was a bit of a lull here in Ontario where our COVID numbers went down for a bit in the summer and things started opening up again. It started to seem plausible for us to do face-to-face -face interviews for a bit. But we took a lot of precautions. My dad was always rocking an N95 mask and we threw that bad boy up. Uh, but really, it became irrelevant because we haven't done an in-studio interview since the end of November. But you may have noticed in all of my intros for my Zoom chats, I would always still have that plexiglass up. And that's because it became more of like a symbolic thing for me. I kind of told myself, I'll get rid of the plexiglass when I really feel that light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm so happy to report that that's where we're at now. I'm fully vaccinated. But more importantly, my 65-year-old dad who sits in studio when we do this stuff, he's fully vaccinated. And a lot of the potential guests I'm reaching out to are in the same boat. So it really does feel like the risk factor is coming down to a point where we can do this in a really, really safe way again. And I am so excited. I, uh, I'm still gonna do Zoom interviews when it's applicable. You know, sometimes I've learned to love them because sometimes the opportunities they present are just great. Not everyone's always gonna be in Ottawa wanting to come to my basement in Nepean, you know? So um, I, I realize the beauty of being able to chat with people that are uh, at faraway distances, but I would be lying if I said that I wasn't just ecstatic about being able to sit eye to eye with somebody and do it old school at the green table here. So uh, I'm beyond excited to to announce that. And there's actually some crazy interviews that I've already got set up for later this summer that I am not going to spoil here because I don't generally like to jinx that kind of shit, but I'm ecstatic about that too. So I really can't wait to share all that crazy news with you. Anyways, now for the usual spiel. If you are watching this on YouTube right now and you would prefer audio only, you can get that on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, many other places like that. Contrary to that, though, if you are listening to my voice on one of those platforms and you didn't know that there was a visual side to the show, then I encourage you to please come check it out on YouTube. While you're there, or if you're watching on YouTube right now, could you please subscribe? Uh, I'm trying to hit 1,000 subscribers right now, and I'm currently at like 940, I think, at the time of this recording. So every person really makes a huge difference to me, and I've had so much fun connecting with people that have reached out to me. Um, so keep it up, and thank you so much if you've already supported the show. Speaking of reaching out to me, though, if you want to hit me up, I will reply to you. So send me an email. It's justchillpodcasting at gmail.com. Back to the guest of this episode, though, as I mentioned, an extremely intelligent man. His name is Mitchell Smolkin. We did not know each other. We were connected through a mutual party, and I'm so glad that we were because the chat really just kept blowing my mind. Not only was he such a down-to-earth, really chill, easy guy to talk to, but uh, he knew so much. Obviously, his credentials speak for themselves. He was just wise, extremely wise. You know, That was the best way I could describe it. Um, the pivots and the changes in the conversation were also really fun. We spoke for like an hour and 40 minutes or something, and it was kind of all over the place. So, um, 
Beyond his, his therapy credentials though, he's a musician, he's an author, he's a speaker. He was reaching me from his office in Sweden, which was also super interesting. So uh, I'm really, really excited for you to check out this chat and everything we talked about. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you. Hello. Hey there. Oh, you can hear me all right? Yeah, you hear me too? Yeah, loud and clear. Cool. That, that smooth podcasting voice coming through loud and clear. <laughs> uh, thanks, you? man. Uh, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm pretty good. I want to thank tired. You for... It's late over here. Oh, yeah. This is the first thing I was going to ask you is which office were you in right now? So you're in Sweden? Yeah, I'm in Stockholm. <laughs> oh, cool. Uh, what time is it there? 10. 10. Okay. Yeah, it's getting getting late. Where are you? I'm in Ottawa. Oh, sweet. So yeah, 4 p.m. here. But uh, thanks for taking the time, especially then if you're up staying up late for me, man. My family, uh, my father and grandmother were born in Perth. Oh, cool. Very close. Yeah. And uh, and then my grandparents lived in Ottawa for years, right in, right in front of Harringate Mall. Oh, right on. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'm out in Nepean, so I'm West End. Oh, sweet. Yeah, I like yeah. Nepean. I also want to give a shout out to Randy, Randy Phipps, for helping connect us here, because uh, even just starting to get into your stuff, I'm super excited to talk to you because you seem like a really interesting individual and uh, very oh, intelligent. So, yeah, a lot I want to go over. I'm hoping I can fit it all in. But uh, sure. I first, actually, I want to apologize for going all casual Friday on you here, but uh, in Ontario, I'm in, the I'm in the same boat, buddy. <laughs> yeah, they well, normally a man with your credentials, I would try and spiff it up a bit, you know, but uh, Ontario, they just opened retail today and I still can't get a haircut for another month. So uh, I'm rocking the hockey, <laughs> hockey look with the little mullet action. I'm seeing everybody have their first beer in a patio in like a year and they're like, it's <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> My parents had breakfast for the first time on a patio this morning and they were like, you'd think they were meeting like the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, when it gets taken away like that, you of course, no, of it. course, yeah, of course. You, um, I actually want to talk to you about being in Sweden during the pandemic because I, I read an interview that you were a part of and it was really interesting because Sweden had a unique perspective on how they chose to handle the pandemic situation. Um, but before I do that, I want to give my audience a bit of a feel for all of your amazing accomplishments. You're a psychotherapist, uh, an emotionally focused therapist with a master's degree in counseling psychology. You're also an author. You're a speaker, an actor, a musician, a man who wears many, many hats. Um, so, you know, I don't even know where to begin, but uh, you've also launched a podcast now called The Dignity of Suffering, which I listened to the preliminary intro episode and uh, wow, it's, you know, I'll get into that when we get into that. But um, am I missing anything here as far as your, your accreditations? No, that's great. Cool. Thank, that's a nice introduction. <laughs> yes, man. Well, there's so much to cover. Um, <laughs> so being in Sweden, though, I do want to touch on that because I thought it was super interesting that they basically took a really relaxed approach when it came to restrictions. They said, old people, you stay home, you know, let's try and stay away from each other. But they didn't really shut anything down. And you would call back to your parents in Ontario and it was kind of like Twilight Zone almost. It's still, I mean, it, even, it just kept going. Like the Twilight Zone just kept getting more and more real because as the fatigue set in and as, you know, people have their different opinions about lockdown, et cetera, I don't know. I didn't really know how to talk about it. Right. I mean, I remember I was lying in the beginning. I'd be like going to yoga or something and I'd be like, They'd be like, hey, what you doing? I'm like, uh, I'm going for a walk. 
Oh man. <laughs> because and still now I don't feel all that comfortable you know sharing that things have really remained open. I've gone to my office, uh you know restaurants remained open. You know, it's a complicated discussion, I think, because there are so many factors and more people, the mortality rate was higher. And I was sitting here this morning with a friend and her friend, both their parents died uh, in the early 70s. And so it's complicated, right? It's uh, but on the other hand, I was also reading an article today about people whose businesses, you know, stayed open, even thrived and and so it's just complicated, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it's a balancing act. But mm. but the truth is, is that we've been living in a very different world. And I'm not, you know, I can't say that I I was sorry for that because it was nice. It you know, it felt good to be able to have a certain degree of freedom. Uh, on the other hand, uh, like I said, it's uh, yeah, it's complicated. Well, I was going to ask you, yeah, if you had any moments where you're you know, maybe panicking a bit or feeling afraid of, of getting sick, especially when you're watching the rest of the world sort of batten down the hatches and then, you know, business as usual for the most part where you are. Well, I, I mean, I had COVID and actually here yeah. it's, le it's less a matter of who you know that, uh, sorry, didn't have it versus who you know that had. <laughs> so it was interesting to watch. Uh, and I joked with our neighbors yesterday. I watched, I think, like Nova Scotia, one of the provinces in Canada was like, oh, we have 60 cases. We're shutting down. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, we have 60 cases on our block. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and that's not, I mean, I, I know it sounds weird uh, and maybe a bit cavalier, yeah. but it's it's true. And, and uh, you know, li literally friends, uh, the, the, the director of the clinic, my neighbors, the friend I run with, I mean, Really, it, it, it was quite widespread. Wow. Uh, and and was uh, it, uh, I mean, it impacts everyone very differently, it would seem. So what was the you know course for you? Was it was it brutal or were you, you know, was it somewhat mild? No, I, I luckily had a mild like like a, a cold. There, there was, you know, for a while I run and do like some some relatively long distance running and stuff like that. And I felt after my runs, there was, you know, a, a cough and uh I had one friend here uh, that I almost lost and wow. uh and she spent 6 weeks in the ICU and uh she was gone like she said she saw her relatives like dead relatives around the hospital oh. bed that the whole deal the and, side, yeah and so I had a chance to sit with her and you know uh and I don't think I don't know how many people have ever sat with where someone's telling me a story like that that was pretty intense and i remember when you know so luckily for me it was it was mild and um but yeah so certainly a, certainly a different reality in many ways and uh but not to betray the fact that many scientists people i work with were very upset mm. there was a group of 20 scientists that wrote a letter open letter to the government and some of them had to leave the country uh because they received so much vitriol and uh Wow. Pushback for calling it out. So it's interesting because people think of Sweden, you know, like ABBA and everyone, you know, all the kids get food at school. And yeah, um, but it, it it really showed a different side to the country and, and a kind of complexity that I think people don't normally associate with this country um, and a lot of division. And and the last thing I'll say, which doesn't say, you know, doesn't speak highly of the country, is that I had certain clients who were of a visible minority. One client's husband was Korean and he stopped going outside because early on, if he wore a mask, people would yell at him 
and uh, and it may, you know made him uncomfortable, and he he would not go out, and so because he was wearing a mask, because wow. he was wearing a mask, yes, yeah, there was no adoption of widespread mask wearing here at any stage. Only even with that, though, you would think it's a, a bit extreme to actually be bothered by someone wearing a mask, even if it's not you know the norm or whatever. Like, why I wouldn't care <laughs> if someone walked by. That's like being bothered by someone wearing a pink shirt or some other arbitrary thing, you know. Well, I think it was it was like an out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. So yeah, I think when they people wore masks, mm. they were like they were these kind of little pockets of reminding everybody else that actually was going on. And I think it raised people's anxiety level, and that could come out in awful ways. They uh, wanted to kind of just blah, 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 you know block to, it all. To, yeah. Totally, uh, mm. and really only like three months ago, like three months ago, did the government say wear it on the subway? Three months ago. Wow. <laughs> Oh my God. Well, so that's, you know, different, different, another planet. Like I wrote the national post, like another planet. Uh, well, I'm, really. I'm glad you've got those sweet antibodies now, at least. And that you, yes. To, yeah. Yeah. And I've been vaccine too. And you know, we're, oh, nice. we're, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're, we're, we're about on par with Canada in that respect. Uh, nice. Yeah. I'm fully vaxxed now. My dad's uh, fully, he just got a second shot recently. So in a couple of weeks, we're hoping to start doing in-studio stuff again, if we can find guests that are, uh, vaccinated. Willing so that's to, yeah. Very exciting. I haven't done an in-studio interview since like November. And you know, yeah, yeah, different vibe. Not that I'm not enjoying these as well. You know, I can talk to people in Sweden, but there is something to be said about, you know, looking someone in the eyes and sitting across the table from them. Yeah, no, I've got to see patients in person the whole time. That's uh, great. That's one um, upside. I, I, yeah, I guess so. I mean, but it is true, right? That 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 flow never stopped. Uh, but, you know, these kinds of conversations, I guess, as, as a, a friend said yesterday, three, four, five years when they look back, it'll be clear, you know, yeah. what what happened to different countries. And yeah, that's true. We'll be able to see through the fog a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, OK, well, I want to on the vein of the pandemic, then I wanted to talk about the effects that it's been having on couples, both old and new because obviously this has been an extremely difficult time for almost everybody, but uh, it could really put a strain on relationships. So I want to know what are the most prevalent issues and problems that you've been consistently seeing amongst couples that you've been treating during this time? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's an interesting question. I've been speaking a lot about it and truly there's a real, there's a huge range, but I think the, the way to think about it or the way that I think about it is that, you know, couples are like systems, you know, it may seem like a very, uh, I don't know, sterile metaphor, but I often think of, of like, you know, the water mains of a city or something, or, you know, how, how on a, on a beautiful day, uh, no one's thinking about the plumbing, no one's thinking, you know, but, but when, it, when there's a massive weather event, yeah, you know, and you go outside and bridges are flooding and, you know, you really see the weaknesses and where, you know, you know, on a very kind of foundational level. And that's, I think, when we talk about the pandemic, you know, in, in light of other sort of events that affect relationships, it just begins to really show weaknesses in the system. And, and because the pandemic was so prolonged, you know, because people even here, right? I mean, I, I you know, I, I spoke earlier about all the freedoms we had, but but people did take it seriously. People work from home. You know, I work in mental health, so it was, it was a bit different. But the vast majority of people were home. And so many, 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 many couples I worked with, you know, we're, we're all we're on top of each other. Many moved and bought bigger places halfway through because they couldn't stand 
you know, understandably uh, uh, being so close. And that's not a reflection so much on, on a bad relationship. It's just, it's just stressful. If you have a, you know, if you're in the heat, if you're in the heat for 10 days, (laughs) you know, it can really stress you out. Um, So the range of things that I've seen, I mean, in some cases, just to start with the first thing that comes to mind is that for people maybe that, that didn't realize uh, that they struggled with intimacy, for instance, or or have a hard time talking about negative emotions, and maybe during normal times are busy, you know, they're at work or going out on the weekend or just do, doing stuff, traveling. You know, lots of people travel for work. A lot of people, when when they're home and maybe dealing now with feeling a bit claustrophobic, maybe trying to, you know, I remember I was homeschooling my son very briefly, our son's school closed here and I had to teach him to, to play the recorder. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought I had patience. I'm like, I think I'm a patient guy. And then when, now that I had to, like, I I lasted five minutes, like, you know, tears were coming in his eyes. And I was like, holy, I was like, holy moly. Like I thought I I thought I had, you know, I talk about parenting and it was like one of the most humbling experiences. (laughs) And so, you know, to, to feel maybe that kind of humiliation or struggling or frustration, and then to not be able to kind of put into language, if someone's used to, I don't know, turning away from the relationship, going out, reading a book, like if you're used to, to not verbalizing these things, that that's a problem. And it, it, you know, you know, distance starts to creep in. And a lot of couples, uh, like the fire alarm went off. It was like, oh, we don't, under normal circumstances, we might be okay. Yeah. So it's like, it's like a catalyst, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, like when couples have a child and now they're not sleeping, you know, there's really a lot of evidence limits and tests, totally. you know, your metal of, of, can you handle this? Yeah. It's when you realize that the infrastructure might not be as solid as you thought it was because you've been peppering your life with so many distractions that you never really have to address it. I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Which is actually, I think it's really normal, right? When a couple meets and, and has that, that honeymoon, oh, we're soulmates. I see myself in your eyes. Like we need that. Hmm. You know, if a couple can look into the crystal ball and see all the stuff they're going to go through, you know, you run out of the bar. You're like, thank you. You're really hot. Nice to meet you. I'm out of here. So the fact that we, we sort of, you know, bask in the glow of that, that initial honeymoon, we, we need that stuff. And, and normally that can follow a pretty, like, you know, maybe you take time to date, you know, you get married, you know, then you have kids, the pandemic for a lot of couples, especially young couples, it's like right, right away you're, you're together, you know, international couples that maybe had long distance relationships might, might say, you know what, let's just move in together because we can't travel. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of that too. People are like, oh, I, I didn't know what it was like to have somebody around uh, for so long. Yeah. Uh, when it first hit the pandemic, I mean, it must have been uh, quite the make or break moment for a lot of relationships that were sort of on the cusp of, do we move in? Do we take this to the next level? And, you know, right. they started having to conceptualize what that might actually be like or, or trying it out. And, you know, it really, I think, it would go one way or the other in a lot of those situations. It's going to, you know, make or break them. Yeah. Some big decisions that maybe you have more of the luxury of time to figure out certainly had to be made. And I feel like it took time. Like, I feel like it wasn't about until halfway through that I was like, Oh yeah. Like people are coming in and specifically talking about the pandemic. In the beginning, people would ask me, Oh, is it busier? Are people more stressed? And I was like, no, like it, 
feels normal. So it seemed like it was, you know, the way the water kind of laps against the shore, it, it eventually takes time to erode, mm-hmm. you know, and then uh, uh, people were kind of realizing that maybe it was having an impact. But I for others, people, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say people, I think we're having that even on a personal level, like relationships aside. I know I personally had a, I don't know how far in it was, maybe nine months or a year, but I had a breaking point that kind of the pandemic finally caught up with me. And I just sort of for a few months was really distraught and kind of um, feeling aimless and, and really just what's the point of it all going through the motions kind of thing. Happy to say I, I've come out of that tailspin, but um, yeah, I think that happened to a lot of people where everyone's got their own sort of breaking point and, and you're watching people every day. It's somebody else is reaching their limit. Yeah. We're fragile, right? We're fragile. And, and, I think that that exposed a lot of that. And and when I talk about being distracted by going out or going to work, like, I don't mean that's a bad thing. I mean, we that, that's great that we have that stuff. Yeah, of course. And sometimes it moves slowly, right? Like, oh, I think I'll change jobs. But, you know, usually it doesn't all happen at once that you have yeah. your kids at home, you're working from home and people, you know, many lost their jobs. Lots of artists, you know, were mm. Small business owners and stuff. Small yeah. business. Yeah. I mean, we're just, yeah. you know, so uh, I'm not knocking uh, uh, the fact that that we have a variety of things that keep us entertained and, and existentially a bit more comforted. Uh, but when you're laid bare like that, it, it, I think it really does require, it, you know, it's like it's like going from maybe singing happy birthday to having to play like Beethoven, you know, like overnight emotionally. I mean, yeah, in a yeah. relationship, you know, and. People had to, I guess, learn how to really cope with uh, bigger and more darker emotions in many ways. Well, and for a lot of couples, uh, all of a sudden, both being at home, like you said, especially if you've got kids, there's there's some truth in a lot of relationships to the the adage of absence makes the heart grow fonder. There is, oh, you go to work all day and then you're like, oh, hey, it's really great to see your face again. You know, there's some value to that, I think. Yeah. But, um, you know, I feel like my relationship did fine during the pandemic because we spent the majority of our time together pre-pandemic we were always playing board games and always you know like if i it's who do i want to hang out with i'm always picking her you know so uh i think that kind of a bond if you had that going into the pandemic really was able to shine and be reinforced even more of going like wow look at us you know not to no you know no it's it's all the people who didn't have such an easy time but i was proud of my relationship to be able to be like wow look at us and everything we're enduring and she sorry i should preface by saying she's an icu nurse i also have a job at the hospital so there was that extra uh tension especially at the beginning when no one knew what the heck was going on so um yeah no I, i think yeah absolutely many many couples went in i mean it's it's sort of advocating kind of for the same thing right that many went into it and it brought them closer i traveled you know, I was coming back to Canada every month uh, before, and I, I, this is the longest that I've been in Sweden without leaving. And it was really nice to find myself at home, sometimes on the weekend, like not packing for a trip, just making mm-hmm. dinner or, you know, it was, it was, it was really nice. So I think, yeah, you're right. We have to point out that many couples just liked having time. And also many people who are more introverted, um, uh, you know, it took the pressure, like it, it reduced anxiety in relationships. If one person likes to make plans and go out and program stuff for the kids, and that's a source of conflict for many couples, it was like, oh, look, can't do anything. Isn't this great? And yeah. it kind of reduced some of those disagreements. So it had a it certainly had a positive side as well. Well, for an artistic uh, perspective as well, I think if you're like, I, I do comedy, music, stuff like that. And I know a lot of other people that are into those things. And I think that there's 
the the downside of of course we can't perform right now but there's this vast amount of time where you can be crafting your next for when we finally can go back up. So I, I found that to be a bit of a silver lining myself, like, oh, okay, I'm doing crafts and hobbies that I've been putting on the shelf for a while. And I'm putting, you know, focus back into fitness and, and other things like that. So yeah, you got, it's really about how you choose to perceive the situation. I mean, obviously there's a lot of downsides, but you can try to find those little hidden nuggets of positivity. Yeah. And I, I, I like that idea, right? I mean, it's hard. I found it hard at some point, you know, especially with all the stories coming out of people being sick and illness, you know, it was, it was tough to sort of rationalize that idea of like, oh, this is kind of like a crossroads. Maybe it's time to do something else. And certainly many of my artist friends were writing and saying, oh, so what, you're a lawyer and, and someone else, someone's like, hey, why don't you sell shoes? Or like, you know, like, like there was that, there was that sort of uh, uh, people saying, oh, maybe it's time for you to, you know, do something else with your life. And someone's like, yeah, no, yeah. I spent 30 years <laughs> building my career as a touring musician. I understand you, you, you know, think this sucks for me, Yeah. you know, but your advice to now all of a sudden, I don't know, learn to be a nurse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, start your life you know, over. It'll be easy. Right. So yeah. I was a bit like, like, you know, but on the other hand, look, I started a podcast. I started writing more, you know, certainly, you know, things uh, develop for me too. And I think you're right that if, if you know, uh, yeah, what was that cliche, right? Like life, life throws you lemons, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Throw them back and ask for a water. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's healthier probably than lemonade. I want to know then, okay, what are your best dating tips or and and sorry rather relationship tips for people that you know are maybe used to having more social interaction uh date nights and stuff like that but all the things that we can't really do right now and that couples may be finding themselves at these impasses what's the best advice you could give or words of wisdom yeah it's a great question um uh, to be honest my it may not seem like like the answer one might expect but I interviewed a Canadian last week and the podcast comes out next week on Tuesday. I interviewed Gabor Mate, who's okay. just launched a film called The Wisdom of Trauma and he's writing a new book and he's a celebrated Canadian author and writer on trauma. And, and, and I need to start here because it, it, you know, it, it feels to me a little facile to, to sort of tell couples that maybe, you know, couldn't go out <laughs> for over a year to, to sort of, you know, skip over the fact that there may be a kind of disorientation or sadness or helplessness that may, maybe one has to sort of address first. And, you know, what Gabor Mate wrote an op-ed at the beginning of the pandemic, and he said, look, just let yourself be sad, you know, let yourself kind of feel some of the feelings. And the reason that I answer that, uh, you know, to a question about dating is that you know it's the it's the quality of the relationship that dictates the quality of the time that you spend together sure. and so you know so if there's distance between you or you're having a hard time acknowledging how you feel you know no advice about doing stuff together in a different way is going to make a difference because it's the time that we spend together and the quality of that whether we're out whether we're at home playing board games whether we're just lying yeah. in bed and reading together it's that you know it's the comfort level we have that i think underscores whether that feels, you know, good. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, and so for starters, if if couples are struggling or really feeling like like they're now roommates because they, you know, haven't, for instance, been able to go and do what they normally do or things that invigorate the relationship, I think first you just have to kind of just 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 have an honest 
reckoning of like, yeah, like, like with the feeling of feeling distant or the disappointment that maybe things you love to do have been taken away. Uh, you know, and, and then to be honest, I don't, I don't, I think at that point, couples really know what to do, you know, meaning if you're close or you feel like a team or, you know, then like you said, you, you, you know, you do what you love playing board games, watching movies, reading books, just talking, you know, so I think ultimately if, if there really is a genuine struggle or the relationship is scared in some way, because it feels like you haven't been able to do what you do that recharges your batteries, it's, it's almost like you have to talk about that that fear first and yeah. almost everything Absolutely. else will yeah. yeah everything else kind of you know will unfold from there because when you're close and you trust somebody you know compromising and coming up with things to do is a lot easier than when you feel adversarial or distant right though yeah. that that's really what drives i think indecision or you know these kind of blame uh blame dances that that tend to take over relationships yeah i feel like I don't know, maybe it's cheesy, but I feel like your partner should really be your best friend, at least in theory, you know, you might have difficult patches, but if you don't feel that, at least me personally, I don't know why you would want to be married to that person or in a, I mean, obviously things can dissolve over time and not be what they once were. So that's a different story, but uh, going into it, if you're starting up a relationship, deciding to move in or deciding to take the next level, whatever that may be, you really should look and say, is this person my best friend? And if the answer is not yes, then maybe yeah, evaluate. For sure. And I, I maybe have a bit of a skewed perspective since I, you know, I, I work with literally thousands of couples and, and, you know, the, for me, the notion of best friend and trust, it's, it's like a dynamic process, right? It, it, you know, the best friend thing for me, it, you know, it just gets deeper and sweeter over time. But you know the, the the roadblocks are when I think the closeness, like the best friend closeness, brings up strong feelings or memories or things that are hard to talk about. And that's as a couples therapist what I see. To your point, mm -hmm. attachment is so strong, and and you know hitching yourself to you know to the wagon in a relationship raises the stakes, and the emotions in relationships are much stronger than you know colleagues very often or strangers that we have a great chat with and. People often are confused, especially if they're having a hard time in their relationship. They're like, look, I have an easier time talking to my colleague at work or a stranger I met in the cafe. I come home and it feels hard or inorganic. Yeah. And I'm like, well, of course it does, because because like you said, you're that much closer to the person. So maybe someone you meet in a cafe, it's like, yeah, they're shining a little flashlight on your life. And and you're, you're telling not invested them, I don't know. in the same way. Like there's yeah. so much riding on a marriage. Like I've been through a divorce and I'm happy to say, I, I feel like I say this a lot in, on my show, but we're, we're great now. My ex and I, you know, we share our, my oldest too and all that. But uh, yeah, it was not an easy thing to go through. And uh, I've, you know, I'm happy that it happened to me though, because the trauma and, and sort of to your podcast theme, the trauma of that experience ended up being very beneficial to have to face all those things and have to be alone and have to say, well, and also the idea of, um, breaking up the family was so, so keeping me from, from, you know, taking that step uh, until it was totally. eventually sort of forced upon me. And I had to just roll with it, you know, when she was like, I'm out. Um, but I remember feeling that way of just like, oh, I can't do this. Our kids are young, like it'll destroy their lives. And in the end, it's like been so much better for them, you know? So yes, yeah, there's so many yeah. layers to relationships and, and, and marriage. And like you were saying, once you get 
enamored with someone and, and best friends and all those layers, it, it becomes such a fixture of your life that, yeah, you kind of hold on tight because you're afraid every, the world will fall apart if you lose that tent pole that's holding everything up, you know? Yeah, it's high voltage, right? The decisions yeah. like you're saying. And, and I like what you said because I think whether whether one does separate, whether one one wrestles through it, the, the, the point is, is that these experiences stretch us in, in incredible ways. And that's something I think that we just have to normalize, you know, because yeah. I think we're, we're, I know I did many times as, as my relationship took turns and, you know, we freak out, right? We freak out at these moments when it doesn't feel the way it did. And, and there's something about, I guess, just talking openly about it to expect, to expect these fears and expect for things to really change and, you know, and just try our best to put language to it uh, so that either, as you're pointing out, we, we, we can get closer or, you know, if it, if it really is hurting us and not working, that we can acknowledge it and, and make a different decision. Yeah. And hopefully move forward with that decision on decent terms where you're not clawing each other's throats out, you know, because I, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. there was a bit of that animosity when I first got separated, but I feel like we moved past it pretty quick because you uh, really the the turning point was when we each found new respective partners. And then there was no more jealousy about, oh, you're dating someone, but I'm not or you, you've moved on and I'm still wallowing or whatever, you know. So once we both found new partners, it really, really was a huge turning point. Yeah. And I spoke to a good friend today. Uh, we hadn't caught up in a while and he separated from his wife. And he also shared that they are very amicable. They have a kid together. And I was just super happy for him, right? Mm. Because it that's not easy, but it's great. It's great if you can do it. And and uh, yeah, I mean, we don't want these things in our life that, uh, you know, that, that are there constantly, you know, uh, pick, picking at us. And that, that's 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 hard. Yeah, no, I always count my blessings. I feel like I'm one of the lucky ones because I've met many people that I know that are in not so amicable uh, post marriage situations. And, it, you know, my heart goes out to them because it's not easy to navigate. And sometimes people get really petty and really, you know, just trying to hurt the other person because they can't get over the fact that it's over or whatever the situation may be. But uh, yeah, I definitely feel lucky for being able to, you know, come out to a place. where. And just to zoom out from that, right? I mean, what I hear you saying and what I think, you know, we need to acknowledge is how important and how much people affect us. Mm -hmm. You know, how much time do we spend reflecting on exactly that, right? Like how often divorce, you know, you know, can demand so much energy, never mind, uh, you know, these legal battles that can go on forever, yeah. you know, and, and I think what we're just saying and, and, you know, lots of people come into my, to my office and we don't want to be affected by somebody else. Yeah. Right. There's this idea of like codependency and someone's like, no, no, I should be able to regulate my own emotions. And yeah, there's some there's some truth to that, that that we have to, you know, have resources, but we cannot deny the impact that other people have on us. Yeah. And I think if we can just acknowledge that and feel safe with that, that's already a step further to, to just normalizing how, you know, crazy sometimes relationships can make us feel. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I feel like I was not the prototypical teenager with getting into dating and stuff because I was right away, right out of the gates. I wanted a girlfriend. I wanted, you know, quality yeah, me, me too. growth and all that. And I was somewhat of a serial monogamist jumping from one to the next. But I think I dated one girl 
for, you know, most of high school, it was like end of grade 10 to beginning of grade 12. So that's exactly what I did. Oh yeah. yeah. And well, I remember it being a bit disorienting at the beginning of grad year, because all of a sudden I was single. And, and during this time where I had been with this one person, all my friends had been dating other girls and, you know, racking up experience or whatever you want. So I remember being a little intimidated by, by going out into that last year of high school, like, Oh, finally single again, you know, (laughs) get used to uh, that companionship. It's so addictive. I I've always found just the having somebody in your corner, it it feels great. Totally. Maybe that's partially a self-esteem issue. I I wouldn't call myself the most independently capable. You know, I feel like I do kind of fall apart without other humans uh, to, you know, resonate with. It really does benefit me a lot. I don't know if that's empathy or what, but. Yeah, we're social beings from cradle to grave. We're social beings. Think about what happened during the pandemic. People trying to come together, people clapping at, at, you know, frontline workers. And, you know, we're, we're, you know, (laughs) There was that joke about capitalism, right? This notion of individualism has said, you know, if capitalism is so great, why does it need socialism to bail it out every 10 <laughs> to 20 years? <laughs> you know, like, like the pandemic hits and what happened? Gov- government step in, funding businesses. I mean, we need, yeah. we need this infrastructure. And I'll say one thing about Sweden is that they do the, uh, you know, the, the, they do a very good job supporting people with illness if your child is sick here and you have to stay home to take care of them, the government pays your salary Wow! for over 200 days in a year if there's a serious illness. That's amazing. That's not even counting your own sick days, which you're entitled to. But, but if your children are sick here, <laughs> you and we found this out when we first moved here and, and my son was sick and they called my wife into HR. They're like, sign this. They even wrote to her, she had a seminar to give at the university and, and the director wrote to her and said, we've moved your seminar two weeks ahead. You shouldn't have to be working on it while you're at home taking care of your son. That's a- and so oh. when I was watching some of the stuff from Ontario, when they got rid of the two paid sick days, like my heart was breaking. Yeah. Because as you pointed out, I mean, we need each other. And when I was a manager in Toronto and I had to like, you know, check my staff and they lying about their sick days to be with their kids at home. I mean, it was just so stressful. And so that's like one thing. No, they do very well here is that people are not afraid they're going to lose their jobs or lose their income if children are sick. And uh, I, I think it's a lovely thing. I think that helps society be less uh, anxious. That's along the same lines as the uh, universal basic income that they were sort of toying with the idea here in Canada. I know other countries have done it already, and it seems like not the worst idea, you know, just giving people a sure footing so that they don't have to invest so much time and energy into panicking about not being able to pay their next bill. And I don't know, I think it would benefit in a lot of ways. I'm sure there'd be a couple of people taking advantage of the system, but it's, you know, it was only a thousand bucks a month or something. It's not an insane amount of cash. It's just enough that you can kind of coast a little bit on, on the stress levels and focus your, your energy into something a little more productive or artistic or, you know, I'm in support of it personally. Well, I think what it makes me think of is, is in line with what you and I are talking about, which is that if we are social beings, if we get sick when we are in isolation or we don't know how to, how to put food on our table, that that if that is actually taken seriously then the cost the cost to society the cost to hospitals the cost to mental health for people that are that that feel isolated and that that's a definition of trauma this is diana fosha in new york she says you know 
trauma is overwhel- overwhelming emotion from a place of aloneness. Hmm. And so to your point, if, if, you know, if there's just this idea, if we just lay our egos down and say, look, we're going to basically try to support people, you know, th- then you might, you know, you might have just less wear and tear uh, on, on healthcare because people aren't walking around, as you're pointing out, you know, sick from worry yeah. about how they're going to survive. And that has its own cost that I think we're constantly trying to uh, deal with and understand. Yeah. And of course, the pandemic only added to that of being actually physically worried about getting sick on top of all the other things you worry about on a normal day to day basis. Yeah, I'm, I'm really hoping, you know, it's going to wrap up soon, <laughs> much like everybody else. seems like we're, we're getting there, but uh, it's it's arduous and, and feels sometimes just like eternity, you know? Yeah. But um, I do want to ask you along those lines, what do you think about uh, I heard recently that a lot of dating apps now, people are starting to display vaxxed badges, uh, partial or fully vaxxed, sort of as a way to let potential mates know where they stand. Uh, but do you think this is something that, uh, like a beneficial development, or do you think it's just another opportunity to be dishonest on so or, you know those types of apps? That's a good question. Uh, I mean, I was certainly... I certainly chuckled a little bit the the way that vaccinations became, you know, whether it's on on Facebook or on social media and and I get it, right? I mean, it's it's a nice thing to share with friends and family and kind of to, you know, as a sign that we're getting out of this. You know, if it's a question of dishonesty for me, you know, that that, that that's just another, th- you know, I imagine there are myriad ways that one can create a persona uh, online. And this is just one more thing that, you know, if someone is fundamentally lying about something, well, then that's I mean, that's a much deeper uh, issue than. Yeah, I suppose, you know, that you know, same person may also have an STD, you know. Yeah, sure. Right. There's many things. uh but look, right? I mean, if it if it helps people feel safe, if that's a priority for somebody, great. You know, the, people will find each other, and you know, I, th- I think if anything, uh, uh, something as divisive as the pandemic, as vaccinations, uh, you know, it just it just, and that's another thing to talk about couples, right? That 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 was also very difficult. People that mm-hmm. had a higher comfort level with 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 risk, and people that are more risk averse, like my my wife you know, you know, was really careful here in Sweden. She was wearing a mask from the beginning. You know, she was re- like li- literally, and I'm not exaggerating, if she was one in 10, 20,000 people wearing a mask, oh, wow. you know, she would go out and maybe in the beginning not see anybody else for a whole day in a mask. And it was, um, it was tough to do. But even in our relationship, and I was telling a friend this morning, I had to learn, like I'm, I'm more, you know, I'm more pushing the envelope. I'm getting out there. I, you know, and I had to really reflect and change and accept our differences in that regard. And I think I came to that and I've told her many times. And so um, I, I think if we're talking about dating apps and and people writing that they're vaccined and stuff, I mean, that's that's going to attract a certain person that is maybe looking for that kind of transparency and and that kind of cue, you know, and then of course they're going to have to do their homework <laughs> and meet them and, and, you yeah, know, just, just follow through, of course. Yeah. yeah. Just figure out if, 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 you know, they think the person's an honest, uh, if they have integrity or not. I mean, that, I guess that that's never going to change when it comes no, to fundamental. dating and, uh, 
you know, or not, right? Some may, because there's the whole public, you know, private, you know, privacy issues. And I heard in the States, did you hear this, that businesses can be fined in certain states if they actually ask a patron uh, for proof of if they're vaccinated. Oh, really? Uh, in the thousands of dollars. And, uh, you know, so that's very, you know, we, you know it's, it's very divisive. I mean, I mean, it's, oh, yeah, I was uh, going to say you touched on that, but th- you know, it seems like the latest in a long string of things, because obviously there was Trump and there's always the red and the blue and all that. But um, the vaccines in particular seem to really, really beyond just romantic relationships, friendships have been ending over this. Yeah. You know, people yeah. are just split down the middle. So what would you what do you think we should do as a society to mitigate that and to try to bridge that gap and maybe get back to a place where we can be discussing things again and not instantly saying, oh, you're on the other side. I want nothing to do with you because that seems to be what's trending now. Yeah. People are always talking about mental health, right? But, the, the, you know, one of the questions is what, what is good mental health, right? What, what are we talking about, right? I mean, we know the basic stuff. We know, for instance, you know, someone can talk and uh, talk about having high anxiety or, or be, being depressed, but what do we really mean? And what, one of the things that, that actually indicates good mental health is actually being able to hold the tension of an argument, right? So good mental health is, you know, I, I can hear you have a strong opinion, but it doesn't trigger me in a way where I feel threatened or I feel like I have to somehow stand on my soapbox and, and you know, get tense and, and, and fight. And, you know, and so I don't I don't know. I'm not so optimistic, to be honest, <laughs> that 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 questions around vaccination politics these are these are always going to create a certain divisiveness because group psychology is very seductive. Mm. It feels it feels very good to kind of subs- chambers. yeah subsume yeah. yourself in you know Rick Salutin, Canadian uh, uh, journalist, at the beginning uh, actually of Trump, he wrote a piece and he was he was taking aim at both sides and he was saying you know we're just puny human beings at the end of the day. And so mm. people are going to just really get into a group and fight to the death. And so to answer your question on a very personal level, I think the way to have conversations is just to recognize in ourselves if we're having a hard time, you know, hearing somebody else's opinion, if we find our back going up, if you find yourself going into ones and zeros, like all bad, all good, if yeah. you hear yourself you know, ever making statements like that. I mean, you know, you, you're, you're certainly in a stress response and there's a direct connection between trauma and, and paranoia, you know? And so, so, so very, very traumatized people, you know, very often will become conspiracy theorists and because it, it, it makes perfect it, sense. Yeah. Because it, it, it's nice to have a kind of aesthetically perfect, pleasing narrative yeah. To to comfort yourself in with no anxiety. And Safety if someone comes it. along and tries to shift it, that means now you have to experience anxiety until you're like, nope, nope, doesn't matter whether, you know, Biden won. <laughs> you know, it's like, nope, I can't believe it because then I'll have to be anxious. And so yeah. I think one way is to realize that anxiety is good. You know, you should feel anxious sometimes if you're having a debate or if you're meeting somebody who's different that challenges you. We can't be afraid of being anxious and so on a personal level, I think, uh, you know, just just try and listen and, and realize if your back is going up and go and go for a walk. <laughs> yeah. Cool your jets. It's, and what you were saying about conspiracy theorists, I've uh, I've had a couple a friendship or two sort of go awry because of stuff like that. And I'm not someone who's closed minded. You know, I, I've seen many 
conspiracies eventually be proved true. Like I'm open to that. I think we should question things, but I've had a, a couple friends go off the deep end with, you know, flat earth and, and anything you throw anything at them. Yeah, that's it because it goes against the mainstream narrative and that's seductive. Like you said to them, maybe it's cool, but I think a lot of the time it's, um, sort of a fabrication or like a fairy tale that they can be a part of because it's, it's a way of reassuring them. Oh, it, sorry. I should preface again by saying that all the people I know that are like this are people who do not have their shit together. They're not exercising. They don't have a good job. They don't have strong relationships. And I think this helps them imbue themselves with this narrative of, Oh, it's not me. That's the problem. It's the world. And now I have the real knowledge and everyone else just doesn't get it. You know? Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's better. There's a great, it's better. This is a bit of psychoanalytic language, but it's better to have an object than no object. Meaning, you know, you know, it's better to have a vision for something that maybe inspires you and seems clear. And maybe there's a guru there that you can follow than it is to feel lost and alone. You know, that that's almost easier than being sad and, and, you know, and realizing maybe there is no, no quote unquote truth, you know, mm -hmm. that, that it's complicated. And so I agree with you. I think it, it makes sense. And I have, uh, I have some friends here whose, whose parents are way off the deep end in the U S with, you know, the QAnon and, and it's, uh, yeah. it's sad to hear them talk about calling home. And really there's no, there's no way to relate because it's, uh, it's so drastic. Uh, yeah, but yeah I think it's a symptom of pain for sure. I've seen this happening with other people too, parents or just different relationships. And they try to talk about these issues. They reach an impasse and then they start to tiptoe around it, not talk about it. But then it becomes this festering thing that like the elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about because they know it's instantly going to just erupt in, into tension and, and drama, um, which is so unfortunate. Cause like you said, it's happening to families and, and couples. And I don't know. I just wish people could get to a point where we could, you know, really just talk things out a little bit more. We're never always going to agree on everything, but we could try to get back to the roots of what make us human and the things that really connect us, you know, the yeah, same reason I, I never understood. I've never understood homophobia, racism, all that, because in my mind, I'm always like, you know, we're all just trying to do our best here. We're all just born into these weird skin suits and, you know, totally. we're just trying to survive. I admire people that really speak up. You know, I, I admire people that go into the fray, all the stuff happening in Canada recently with, you know the, the the graves of these indigenous children and 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 mm. this horrible incident in london and and yes. you know my friends that that are really keyed in and and you know putting these issues out there and speaking so eloquently about them i have so much respect for them you know because like you just said you know i, I find with myself if i know a discussion is just going to become binary ones and zeros I'll, I'll tend to park it because i'm like there's no there's no point in going around and around and just seeing, you know, so I, again, that, that may be something that I need to grow into, but people that really put themselves out there and advocate, I, uh, I think it's a pretty amazing trait and it's important and, uh, it takes courage because it's, Definitely. it's not easy to stand up and, and have these, you know, really, uh, difficult discussions. Uh, that's, that's, Standing up for anything is, is admirable. And a lot of times it's extremely difficult. This is a bit of a weird story, but I don't know. I think I'm going to tell it. Something happened to me <laughs> yesterday that put me in a very awkward situation where I had to confront a very awkward situation, but I felt I did the right thing. I, I was walking my dogs. Um, this was just before noon. And there's a little uh, ravine near our house with a bridge that goes over it and uh, sort of a forested area, but 
you know, a stone throw away, I'm talking 20 yards or whatever it is, there's a school and there's a playground and this forest connecting area kind of just goes between them. I'm walking my dogs through and quickly realize there's a woman giving oral sex to a dude on a log. Um, broad daylight, right up there. So my, my first reaction was turn around, obviously, because I didn't want to be a perv. And also I was kind of just taken aback, like, is this really happening right now? It's like lunchtime and there's a school You're... and a playground. Like, what? Are, this is sex offender stuff here. Um, but I actually forced myself to turn around and walk by. Obviously, I was trying to avert my eyes, but I, I you know, said, hey, I walk my kids through here, you know, get a effing room, whatever, you know, I normally I swear on this, but if for some reason, I don't want to swear to you. Um, yeah, oh, it's I, funny. I, I want to swear earlier, but I wasn't sure. Uh, oh, you can swear. I said, sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. Well, then, yes, here's my verbatim. I said, yeah, get a fucking room. And I found myself all day thinking of all these things I wish I would have said, because I don't think I really said enough, because for all I know, they may have just gone right back to it after I left. And and the next people who may have come up might have been some kid who's now going to be traumatized and confused by this brazen act just so they can get their jollies with a kick of adrenaline or whatever. It just felt so, so selfish and so disrespectful. You should have said, go to fucking Sweden. (laughs) (laughs) They they don't frown upon that there. <laughs> well, you know, there's just uh, a long history here of, of a certain comfort level with, uh, you know, you. you know, but uh, yeah, well, I'm to sure me, it was, very, it, was the, <laughs> it was not, I was not offended by a couple. Or no, of course they not. It, yeah, it, it was yeah, more yeah. That's... the location, the geographical location to me was like, there's kids around here. And if you know this neighborhood at all, and the one woman I've seen her walking around, so I know she does there's children around here and that's where I kind of drew the line. I'm like, you know, you want to do something kinky in a movie theater yeah, or, in the dark. Okay. That's or a little get different. behind the log, not on the log, like well, the use the log, on the log, use it as a prop yeah. or something. I mean, at least just <laughs> no, well, the weirdest part was when I sort of walked up and again, I wasn't really looking, but I could tell that they weren't really adjusting or like put, you know, pulling their stuff together. They, it felt more like they were waiting for me to leave. And just kind of accepting their temporary shame before they could resume their activities. I don't know. So I had a, a different experience, but so so Stockholm, uh, you know, you know the Stockholm Central is one of those beautiful cities I've I've ever been in in my life. I mean, it's so pretty. It is a bubble, though. It's very homogeneous, kind of in the center. You know, they they you know when you get into the suburbs of Stockholm, you find very dense immigrant communities, and that was tricky when COVID started to get the word out and get information to people. But we went to Oslo. And there was the opposite that they they tried to break up certain neighborhoods that were you know had high crime and drug use and so it, hmm. it it pushed everything into the center and so we went to Oslo we stayed right by the train station I went for a walk into this park with my son and my wife and there was like a, a really beautiful statue and I walk up and I see this this woman literally injecting like putting a needle into her arm oh. and and I just like my arm just went out to my son I like. You know, did a did a like, oh, let's go over this way. (laughs) You know, I don't think you ever saw it, but it was just this, like you said, right? I mean, it's, you know, we got a, yeah. I mean, in that instance, I would have a little more compassion because she might have been out of her mind already. There's less judgment. Not that that's really an excuse, but compared to this couple, I mean, I suppose they could have been out of their mind, but they (laughs) they looked more just like a couple that were trying to spice up their marriage or whatever. And anyway, I can't believe I told that story. Um, It just happened to me yesterday. I still can't really believe it. It was so weird. Uh, Unless I see pictures, it didn't happen. Yeah, well, I'm not going to pull out my phone in that moment. No, thanks. (laughs) I mean, I guess I could have to take it to the cops or something, but anyway. 
Um, I want to know just one last question about COVID and, and all this stuff we've been going through is, do you think there are any lasting effects that are going to be really, really common post pandemic once this is really over? And especially in, uh, do you think the youth are going to be severely impacted by, you know, during their developmental stages, pick an age, I'm sure it's going to impact them, but like, how do you think this is going to, you know, resonate? Yeah, with- it, it's a, it's it's a good question and, and i literally was saying this to someone earlier today and i mean look <laughs> we we've been through a lot the human race <laughs> i was saying to someone you know how much did you think about the spanish flu growing up you know maybe you knew about it maybe you did a project on it at school maybe i don't know you work in that field but but the vast majority of people it's just a a faint little memory in their mind yeah you know first and second world war Cold War, you never mind people that are coming from places where there were civil wars or proxy wars. I mean, you know, I don't want to underplay, of course, the the, the effects that the pandemic uh, had on us. But I, I really believe if you look at history, uh, uh, w- you know, we move on and people are going to be very excited to get back to normal and, and do things. And um, when it comes to duress, you know, when it comes to things that stress us out, to be honest, uh, trauma is not the event itself. So there's a great there's a great piece of evidence actually that comes out of uh, 9/11 and Hurricane Katrina that actually there were there were more cases of PTSD after Hurricane Katrina than after 9/11. This is the work of a man named Bessel van der Kolk in Boston. He's a psychiatrist, and and and, and the reason that he gives for this is that that our ability again to be social, meaning to get away from something, to run to a friend's place, to get out of danger, that is what protects us. So, so 9-11, if you look at the images, people are running over the Brooklyn Bridge, they're getting away. Don't get me wrong, many people were stuck and lost loved ones, and, and that's maybe where you see cases of trauma. But those, those that were maybe in a state of shock, but were able to actually move and go to safety, mm. that, that, that's what inoculates us from, from lasting effects of events. A, a flood like Katrina, you're you're confined you can't go anywhere and even if you are rescued very often it's even more confining right and so the feeling of not being able to go to somebody to not have support you know that's actually what ends up causing us trauma because we can't um we we can't fulfill the sort of the mammals kind of like like instinct to 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 get away and save itself right that's why soldiers you know, some get traumatized, some don't, but those that do often find themselves in extremely helpless situations. And so I don't know that there's a blanket answer for how it affects people or ages. I think that probably if this, you know, if someone lost their business, if a child loved, loved, loved school and their friends and, and you know, being home was really hard for them, but the child had nobody, <laughs> or if the child was being blamed, for instance, right? If if a child is crying a lot and maybe the, you know, in the family, the parents just couldn't find language for it. Or, you know, we're, we're saying, why, why can't you just deal with this? <laughs> like that, that's the traumatic part, right? The traumatic yeah. part is actually not the pandemic. The, the traumatic part is if the, the stress that people experienced was then, uh, uh, you know, you know, treated in a very negative way by those around them, pathologized or, you know, God forbid, abu- like physically abused or, you know, which people worried about, right? They worried kids not going to school if, if family situations weren't great. I think early on there was a lot of 
people advocating like keep the kids in school because what if the situation at home is really bad yeah that's some kids safe zone for sure so i think that's where we have to focus you know not so much that the the pet you know not everybody who has a glass of wine gets addicted you know not everyone that that, that eats food overeats you know it's not the thing itself it's it's the environment and and comfort that we have around us that protects us from getting traumatized and so if anything if people are listening and this is resonating or if it feels like what you went through if if you were alone with it and then you're noticing certain symptoms like chronic fatigue or you're crying all the time you know that that might be a, not a symptom of the pandemic per se but maybe something getting a bit arrested in the way that it's being expressed and 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 uh, de- dealt with on a, on a communal level uh oh. so that that i think you could totally see uh, yeah that's super interesting way to look at that hmm. thank you for that that was a great answer um i want to before i forget get more into your podcast because you launched this just in may so this is very very new but I, like I mentioned, I listened to the preliminary introduction episode and it was super great. You have great stories about both your grandparents that I think are, are very moving, very touching. And, and your dad talking about his brother too. Like the whole thing was really sucked me in. But beyond oh, that, you just, you. The, the tempo and the cadence of your voice is extremely calming. That's one thing I noticed as well. You're very paced in your speaking, unlike myself. I've got kind of mile a minute. Yeah, I, I question that, but I like just the, 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 yeah, the, the focus. So thank oh, you. It was for calming. That. It was, it was a nice slow down to like, it was the end of my day. I listened to it and it was just a really nice, I was cooking my dinner and yeah, I really enjoyed it, man. So cool. with that in mind, I don't want to spoil those stories about your grandparents. Cause I really think people should go listen to them. They're fantastic. Um, but I want to know when did you for sure realize that you absolutely wanted to spend your life trying to help people? <laughs> was there like a, a moment where everything kind of came together? There was a moment. And it's funny you mentioned that because I literally just told the person literally like last week, uh, the day before I was interviewing Gabor Mate, I just, it was very meaningful for me. And I wrote a post on Facebook kind of just opening up and being like, Hey, like this is, this is really a moment for me. And, and I gave, you know, I wrote to this woman, uh, her name is Carolyn Holdsworth, who was a friend in high school. And we were sitting on the steps in high school. I went to a, like a theater school, you know, in high school. And so there were these steps that went out of the, out of the theater school outside. And we were just talking. And I don't even remember if it was like a boyfriend thing or like all, all I can see in my mind is that she was a bit sad. She was confiding in me. And I remember just sitting there being like, oh, I, I like this. I'm like, <laughs> I, I could do this for a living. I, <laughs> I'm like, I want to be a therapist. <laughs> It was, it was just kind of subtle and sweet in my mind. It was just a, it was just a feeling of, of, uh, of listening and, and connecting. And that, I mean, there are other, uh, there are other moments that, that push things forward or further refine kind of like theoretically what I wanted to do. But, you know, the human connection piece is big for me. And, um, I don't think we should get caught up in, uh, uh, all the theoretical stuff, like the, the relationship part of therapy going back even to Aristotle, uh, is a very powerful component of healing. And so uh, I think for me, that's when it started. That's super great. Oh man. That's cool. It's like your origin story, but I, yeah, I just, I, I just told her last week, I just like on Facebook, I was like, and she wrote to me and she's like, oh my God, it made me smile from ear to ear. And we're going to talk like we've been emailing when we haven't spoken in, oh my God, 20 years. Uh, that's so cool. Yeah, I can see the smile on your face. Just talking about it now. That's awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, you've already had some really great guests on really intellectual people. And I wanted to know if there's anyone that you're dying to interview. That's a good question. I mean, there's a, there's an American psychologist uh, named Donald uh, Kalshed, uh, who's just moved literally across, like from the West to the East coast. And uh, uh, so he wrote to me and said that, look, this summer is like a big, you know, he's in his seventies and they're moving. And um, he wrote, uh, he, he wrote a couple of books. One's called the inner world of trauma. One's called trauma and the soul. Just a really compassionate, intelligent, you know, writer, therapist that uh, I think about a lot when I'm working. I reference him a lot. And, you know, it'd be, it'd be nice to to have a longer chat with him because when I have encountered him at conferences and stuff, it's busy and, and you know, you can't really get into stuff. So, yeah. uh, you know, that's somebody. But Gabor Mate for me was, I mean, literally, it was like my A-list. And I, and I said to myself, like, just try and and you know wrote to him and he I graciously wrote back and said yes and i was like really great <laughs> i was gonna say i know that feeling all too well i've only been doing this show for like a year and a half and i've already talked to so many people i never thought like i had tommy chong on the other week and oh sweet well George that's encouraging and spenny and all these people that i i loved watching on tv as a kid so um i totally know what you mean you just got to put yourself out there and and not be afraid to be a little embarrassed or fail or, or any of that Totally. Yeah. 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 I like that. I, I think it's changed me in very positive ways uh, to, to do this and put myself out there. And uh, yeah, I've noticed that it's, it, it's a, it's a good thing, I think, to, to continually just challenge yourself and definitely. Yeah. Keep trying new things. Um, other therapy questions I had for you. I wanted to know, um, I heard that you were, or read rather, that you were very interested in imagination and dreams. So I want to know what you think we can learn from our dreams. Yeah, it's a great question. It's changed for me over time. Um, you know, one, one of the things that I think has stayed with me when working with dreams or thinking about our imagination is that at the end of the day, we're just people, right? Like I'm just, you know, somebody comes to see me and I can't, you know, yes, I've trained. Yes. I read all this stuff. Yes. I think about it. Yes. I love it, but I'm just another person with my own faults and trying to do my own work. And, you know, dreams are often thought of as a kind of like, like a mediating document, meaning, you know, when we're sleeping at night, you know, parts of the brain are shut down. You know, a lot of the executive functioning is shut down and, and our, our, you know, our, our something within us is producing, <laughs> you know, I tell the story on my, um, I think it's my second episode where when I first did my dream work, uh, the woman I was working with, uh, the women's television network reached out to her and uh, uh, said, look, we're doing a, the, an episode on alternative therapies. Do you have anybody? And so they produced my dreams. So they, they took two of my dreams and they filmed them. They rented a bus, they rented a bank, they had an alarm going off. Whoa. Like this was like, it was on television, one of my dreams, you know? And, um, and so I, crazy, right? Like yeah. so, such, such, a, such a kooky thing to have happened to you. Um, you know, uh, and that woman, Charlene, when I interviewed her and I loved what she said, she goes, she doesn't understand like, she, she's a smart woman, but she's like, I'm not even going to touch where dreams come from. Like, it's such a mystery to her. Um, but there's something about them 
there's a kind of wisdom there and it's coming, it's coming from a place in us when we're not in control, you know, and a, there's a lot of research right now that's being done on like micro dosing. And there's, you know, the FDA in the United States is doing a ton of research using MDMA with soul with hard to treat soldiers. And I've seen the research and I've seen the videotapes. And for me, the connection to what they're discovering is actually that what we have to do, even performing, right? Going to a concert and, and you know, that feeling when, you know, that song that you just love or you put on and it just transports you like somewhere else, you know? I think there's something very healthy about connecting with these parts of us that transcend our conscious mind, our, our conscious intentions, the things that we think we want and need. You know, the way that art can change your mood in a in a heartbeat you know you can be Definitely. like you know you can be kind of lost and and just like ugh, life can suck and like a, a song comes on and you're like and oh you're there's that feeling. The car. yeah totally you know and, and, I, and i just think there's something very powerful that connects us to ourselves when we turn inward like that i mean that mm -hmm. comes from definitely from carl jung but when we turn inward and we consider very seriously these images that are coming from you, whatever you want to call it, our unconscious, these very sophisticated, you know, our memory, right? Why do we dream of, how can we dream of friends from 20 years ago as if, as if they're like right there, like someone you haven't seen or thought about. And then you wake yeah. up and you're like, man, I just, where, when you where, otherwise pretty much forgot about. Yeah. Yeah. How does our, how does our brain hold yeah hold the visceral like it's insane you know, you know it's insane right yeah. and so there there's i i really love it in therapy i mean i also work you know a lot with with neurobiology of emotion and that but when there's a dream like i saw someone today and there's a dream she had about three months ago and what's happening in her life right now we just talked about the dream and it was it just all came together. It was like one of my teachers says, a dream is always a bit ahead of you. You know, it's, oh. it's, it's, you know, you're trying to catch up to your dreams, right? Because, you know, there's that expression and, you know, I speak Yiddish, it's, it's metracht and God lacht, which means like one thinks and God laughs or like one plans and God laughs. Like we, we, we plan things in our lives, but things tend to rock us the other way. And I think, I think dreams are a part of that. They're kind of, they're kind of pushing up against our best laid plans and, and they're hints, you know, they're little hints at, you know, you know, what we need to, to look at within ourselves. And so we, we ignore them to some extent at our peril. I think, you know, that's, well, uh, I mean, I'm kind of torn on dreams because I feel like there's been times where I have a dream that's very distinct uh, and I Google it and, you know, sure enough, the descriptor that they give is very apt for what I'm going through, or, or it's very representative and it makes sense. But then there's other dreams that are just bananas nonsense that I wouldn't even bother typing into Google because I can't even put them together, you know? So um, like they say, if you dream about your teeth falling out, that you're worried about financial stuff. I've, I've heard that amongst other, apparently if you dream about flying, it means uh, you're horny. These are, I don't know if this is accurate, but these are the ones I've heard. Well, I think, I mean, I mean, we have to resist, I think, a kind of reductive, you know, serious, serious dream work in a therapeutic context, you know, need, needs to be careful and considered, you know, we want, we want quick answers. We want kind of fortune cookie stuff, but, yeah. but, but when, you know, when dreams are taken up in therapy or in, you know, it's, it's, there's something about holding the image, whether it's teeth, whether it's flying and really really allowing it to connect to a person's specific life. And so mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not bemoaning 
you know, there's lots of, of literature or websites or people that, that go into the history of symbols and things like this. And there's a, there's actually an institute in New York and all they do is study symbols. It's oh, called Eris. Wow. And I've been there and it's just, you know, they just look at the history of images of planes or of teeth or of mothers or, you know, and they, they collect these things as a way of, you know, connecting us to our imagination in the past. And so, uh, yeah, I'm sure I've, I've looked stuff up at times, but the, the art of working with dreams and therapy is a bit, it's a bit more considered in terms of holding, holding what we don't know and waiting until we, we maybe have a sense of what it, uh, of what it means. But one more thing I'll say, and Carl Jung said this, he said, you know, dreams are like apples on a tree, right? Some apples fall and, you know, degrade in the ground, never get eaten, just, just disappear. You know, some apples are ripe and we take it off and we, you know, taste its juice, Experience you know, and, it. yeah. you know, and I think life is like that, right? We can't be too precious about it. Uh, uh, some things may never make sense. We never. Well, you know, another thing that that is very interesting about dreaming to me is lucid dreaming. I've always thought is very, very cool. And I've even heard that there's certain herbs or, or I can't remember if it was an herb or a, something from Africa, I believe that you can take before bed that will sort of induce lucid dreaming and other tricks. Like if you look for a clock, someone told me that if you try to find numbers in your dream, you won't be able to read language and then you'll become aware of the fact that you're in a dream, stuff like that. Yeah, that's neat. I mean, yeah. I think it all boils down to this curiosity, right? That people intentionally, whether it's lucid dreaming or, you know, I think there's a lot of power in, uh, in, in people experimenting with, with ways of getting closer to themselves. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, dreams are certainly fascinating and you kind of touched on this, but I wanted to know what you think about, uh, people exploring psychedelics for therapy, such as LSD, psilocybin, and like you mentioned, you know, MDMA. Are you in support of that? Or do you think that that's the right way that we should be advancing towards? You know, life is hard. <laughs> um, many types of traumas, especially uh, traumas from war, uh, sexual abuse, um, it can really make life difficult. And, you know, I think um, a few years ago, there was a, a, a vet in the East Coast of Canada that woke up in the middle of the night and I think he shot his family. And, you know, the news reports were talking about like, you know, um, oh, why didn't, why didn't they know this was gonna happen or he had a psychiatrist. And I remember shaking my head and saying, look, we're human beings. I've worked in the hospital. I've worked in the emergency room. I mean, you know, th these are just attempts at good enough understanding and some kinds of traumas break us. And if you look at the history of literature, at psychiatry, at, I mean, pain runs deep and, and we're very fragile. And so this is a way of answering your question, which is if the use of psychedelics, of MDMA, if it helps bypass the ways that we protect ourselves from pain, which cause us to break and explode and hurt other people, I'm, I'm, I'm up for anything. I mean, I mean, whatever helps, whatever helps people feel safer, the danger. And I think Gabor Mate and I touched on this a little bit together is that there's no panacea. And so, I have met people 
you know, when it comes to things like ayahuasca, I don't know if you've heard of that, yes, but yes, you know, yeah. you know, that then you can meet, meet people and like, oh, I've done ayahuasca 20 times, or then it, it becomes like another, like another wild goose chase for, for salvation. And there, there, I think, and that can be ayahuasca, that can be food, that can be therapy. You know, if, if we resist the disappointment of life, if these things become anti-life, yeah. You know, as in, as in the psychedelic, yeah, the psychedelic experience is, you know, hung on to as a kind of ideal way of experiencing life. Yeah. I could see a danger there. Um, but what I saw in the footage that I, you know, the, those that are working on it, it seems to help transcend the vicious ways that we turn on ourselves when we feel helpless and to access a kind of self healing you know, mm -hmm. part of the human being that is very important. Yeah, and I think that a lot of your ego. Yeah, there are many ways to get there. Uh, and and if 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 they find that this adds to our repertoire, you know, uh, the last thing I'll say is people often uh, talk about, you know, medication for mental illness is a the very divisive topic. Uh, I'll tell you something, if you actually study the history of psychosis of schizophrenia, we have come a long way and I worked with patients, you know, that had schizophrenia and bipolar and were on injection medicine and, in, you know, they were better off than, than people in history who were either in chains, <laughs> locked up and kept away from society, yeah. you know, par pariahs. They can have some uh, semblance of a normal life now. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, community and, and, and again, there's no panacea, but, it's a roundabout way of answering a question about what people are trying that we need all these tools in our toolbox because it's hard. It's hard to, it's well, hard to help and, people with trust again. And how are we going to know if something is really helpful to us if we can't even experiment with it and, you know, do these trials and everything that so far has been coming out seems very positive. So it seems like this should have been potentially done a long time ago. Um, so, you know, I'm very hopeful to see where it goes in the following decades. If things keep, you know, people keep challenging the older way of thinking in that regard, which is funny in a way, because the really, really older way of thinking is using all these things. If we're talking thousands of years, you know, cultures have been using, whether it's ayahuasca or mushrooms or whatever. Um, so it's odd and, and interesting that in the last some more modern era of humanity, we kind of made, made them these bad things and became, you know, you're going to go to jail forever if you're caught with this. And, you know, it just seems to contraband status. Everything seems strange decision, but it's probably a yeah, control I'm with factor. You. Uh, I, I think the ways that we attempt to heal are cultural. It used to be very religious, you know, mm -hmm. up until the late 19th century, it really started to change things like exorcisms, yeah. you know, going to confession, for instance, right? That was therapeutic, right? You go like what, like therapy, you close the door, Thing someone's listening right. to you, it's private, you know? Uh, so I think you're right. I think the cultural shifts allow for more, but look, we'll never, um, as long as human beings are on this planet, you know, we're going to have to find ways to deal with existing with pain and not, not, no, no tool, no, no, uh, no arsenal in, in, in psychology is ever going to get rid of, uh, just these huge questions. And that's really goes back to my podcast, right? That, that really is at the heart of it, which is, can we, at least in the background, maintain a sense of dignity around suffering, 
you know, I always go back to the French, you know, I love like the French ballads where, they, you know, you know, I don't know if you ever listen to like Jacques Brel or, or like, you know, Charles Aznavour, but if you ever listen to the French music, they're like 12 stanzas and it's very, folk, you know, often it's like folk music. They're just stories, right? It's just like stories about hardship and disappointment and, hmm. you know, and there's this great, there's this great song by Jacques Brel called La Chanson des Vieux Amants, the, the song of the old lovers. And it's like 12, 12 verses of like all the shit they've been through. And at the end, at the end of it, basically, he's like, oh, well, we're still next to each other breathing. That's the one <laughs> and I just, away. I just love how it, it just normalizes our experience and it makes us a bit less freaked out if shit goes wrong, if, uh, you know, I feel it too when I'm having a bad day or even today, to be honest, I was up at five in the morning. The sun was up here early. I was working and you know, by nine o'clock, I was like, I was tired. I'm like, why am I getting all loopy? And it's like, oh yeah, of course you've been up for like ever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just calm down. It's, you know, you can't always be on. And so that, I think that's what I'm aiming for a bit in the podcast, which is just to look at all different ways that we try to honor uh, our experience and not get defensive or reactive around it, which I think in modern psychology, we have a little bit, you know, where, people are freaked out if they get anxious or, and I'm not, I don't mean to malign people that are dealing with serious anxiety disorders, but I am also pushing the boundaries a little bit. And I'm saying we need to, we need to just accept a degree of, of pain and anxiety and experience so that we can let it in yeah, and not, not kind of drink the well, Kool-Aid. It loses its power that way, which can be very helpful. I do suffer I from so. anxiety and I have obsessive compulsive disorder as well. And, um, I started reading a book a few months back when I was having a bit of a pandemic, you know, moment. And uh, it was a lot of that, just actualizing that in your mind. Okay. You know, I have anxiety. This is just an anxiety attack and not letting yourself get overwhelmed and caught up with the whole thing, you know? And that was very helpful to me. And, it, and it's funny because it's so simple, but to have it written on a page in front of me and sort of given to me like a, an instruction, it really seemed to make a big difference, you know? Yeah, totally. And I think some of this stuff makes us who we are, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I, th I think so, but I don't want to minimize, you know, certainly I have my own stuff that I ruminate on and try and fix and, but I do try to come back as much as I can and say, Hey, like, like the more we can embrace about our subjectivity, the more we can embrace with the things that we maybe obsess over, or a lot of that stuff is how we got here. You know, a lot of, yeah. a lot of the ways that, you know, people that are maybe more a type and, you know, feel like, oh, they can't slow down. It's like, well, there's probably a reason that you're that way. You know, you know, probably maybe it helped your career. Maybe you need to get out of your home or, yeah. you know, and sure there's stuff we have to look at and work on, but we cannot demonize our superpowers. <laughs> you know, the things that like, like kept us alive, you know? And I think that, yeah. I think, I think we're quick to kind of be like, oh, what's wrong with me? Why am I, why am I, you know? And it's like, well, wait, like, hold on. I'm sure there's a reason. I'm sure this got you somewhere for some reason. And that's Kalshed's work. First, let's look at what did this do for you? Why did you go into the world of blazing like this? And there's got to be a reason that you came out of your home with these very specific ways of dealing with the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then if you want to start to tweak things, well, you know, all the power to you, but don't throw yourself under the bus. <laughs> and don't be so quick to judge these things that kept you alive because they'll just come back and be like, buddy, I'm your best friend. Yeah. You're not, you're not kicking me out. If you turn on me, I'm coming back with a vengeance. You know, like your best friend, it's like, why aren't you answering my call? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? 
know? it's true though it can be a survival tactic stuff like anxiety it really does absolutely you, you know kind of steer clear of certain situations that might not be healthy for you and yeah that's a much more positive way of approaching it that's for sure yeah well i think it's actually necessary and i've, I've had people tell me that they finally feel that they're not like like you know they're not all wrong you know that if we can just mm -hmm. i try and do it with myself you know there's reasons i'm gregarious or talking to you or doing the podcast there are reasons i had to kind of you know cultivate a bit a bit of a more open personality and focus on these things you know it's what do they say all re all research is me search <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting i've never heard that i like that though oh man um god there's so much stuff to talk to you about like uh uh, maybe I'll just ask you this later, but I started reading about Carl Jung because I had never heard of him. And I, when I saw in your credentials that you were, uh, wait, I don't want to screw this up. Oh, well, now I can't find it, but it was part of your title was Jungian. Yeah, yeah. I'm a Jungian psychoanalyst. There sure. we go. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. it caused me to, you know, do a bit of a, a little re preliminary research into Carl Jung. And it sounded very interesting. He was like buddies with Freud. And then they had a bit of a separation where they kind of never talked again. And um, so I'm really, really eager to keep reading into that because it sounded like a really cool school of thought. Yeah, um, David Cronenberg, uh, not that the movie is very, let's say, accurate to what happened, but there's a movie called A Dangerous Method, oh, cool. which chronicles uh, Freud and uh, Jung's life. And there was a lot of criticism about the sources that he used and him embellishing them. But look, it's art. So know it's art, but enjoy the film and, and it, you know, um, yeah, no, I, 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 uh, they were the greats, you know, they were the ones that started what we know today as modern day psychotherapy, really. I mean, Freud, you know, you know, the shift was, it's a very clear shift. You know, the shift was that just before Freud and Bloyer, you know, started, uh, they had just discovered that people could be manipulated if they had a serious, severe physical illness, like paralysis. Huh. So this is, this is Charcot working in France, right? Someone can't move the left side of their body. Okay. Okay. And up until that point, they would think something organically is wrong with you, right? Something's wrong with your brain. Something's wrong with your nervous system. Yeah. What they discovered though, is under hypnosis. If you say to someone, when, when you wake up, you're going to, the right side of your body is going to be, be paralyzed. The person would come out of hypnosis and now the right side of their body is paralyzed, but they're walking with the left side of the body. Whoa, what? And that's, that's that, right. It's crazy. But that's where the word transference came from, huh. that you could transfer illness. And so, so, you know, anyway, they just discovered basically that that physical symptom can be caused by severe emotional distress and it's suggestive. So you can actually change okay. through suggestion. Uh, and Jung, you know, we could get into it if you want, but Jung was uh, uh, part, part, part of that history in a way. Uh, but he worked more with psychotics in the beginning where Freud was working more with people that we would call sort of neurotically oriented, uh, uh, what they called Freud back was, then. Yeah. Freud was very uh, much fixated on the sexual nature of things as well, right? And that was something from what I read, Jung kind of deviated from that. Yeah, I mean, I think they were discovering uh, that sexual trauma, first of all, was was, you know, whether whether real or imagined was a cause of a lot of hysteria, a lot of uh, mental illness back then. But then Freud really developed a theory about how our sexual drives, our wish fulfillment, hmm. you know, and 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 the the power of that and and 
you know, really in many ways, what he was talking about was, was how we have to become civilized, right? So, so we have to dampen these instincts and these drives in us and, and go outside. Remember, he was in Vienna and Austria, right? So, you know, kind of, we might argue a kind of almost Victorian repressed kind of, so he was arguing these drives are always pushing up against, you know, consciousness and civility and, and Jung, Jung broadened uh, Freud's sexual theory to talk about energy libido more broadly you know and 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 it's 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 actually very different in many ways what he was his his project around that yeah i'm not not expecting you to paraphrase like both of these men's work right now but it's very very interesting stuff it's i was getting sucked in just starting to do a bit of the basic research so yeah these are Um, the yeah this is the these were the pioneers for sure I do want to shift now, though, because you're also an actor and a musician because you're amazing, apparently, and you do a million things. But uh, you've done stuff on Broadway and, and you performed with Jerry Stiller and Mandy Patinkin and, and people from Sesame Street, I read, which was I need to know which puppets because that's killing me here, not knowing. Uh, so it was who was there? There was the Cookie Monster oh, and um, that's so cool. uh, and the, oh, my God, the blue one. Uh, Grover. Grover. Yes. He's sorry, my favorite. I, I remember seeing the, I wanted to steal it. Did I take it after the show was done? It was like Grover's dressing room. Oh, crazy. And I was like, Oh, I think I took the, I think when the show was done, I like took the sign from the, it was like a printed page, but yeah. I'm like, I need, I need this for my house to have oh, Grover's dressing room sign. So I, so I was involved. Um, a big part of my career was actually performing in Yiddish. Yeah, I read that. Uh, yeah. yeah, so I, I, you know, it was the language of my uh, my ancestors in Europe, and and it had a huge influence on the theater scene in New York and America, uh, and it really gave me an opportunity uh, to travel, to tour, and really come back to sort of the roots of my family, and and as a result of that, I, I worked for a theater in New York City. Uh, and then they would do these uh, huge benefits and and bring in just, you know, people like Mandy Patinkin. And they did a, a tribute to Jerry Stiller. He was injured at the time, actually. So he oh. had to be he had to be um, what's it called on on, uh, you know, on video, video link oh, uh, satellite. But we were at Town Hall Very in cool. uh, on Broadway and. Uh, 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 yeah, and that 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 was uh, that was certainly a lot of fun. So, were you always uh, pursuing these these artistic things in tandem with doing therapeutic stuff, or did you take a break and sort of you know switch back and forth? It's a great question. The the so one of the modal so psychoanalysis uh, um, to train as a psychoanalyst even now they want you to wait until you're older. Uh, so you couldn't apply actually in Ontario until in the past, until you were 35. And then, uh, when I was, I don't know, in my twenties, they changed it to being 30 years old. And the idea was that, that psychotherapy or being a therapist, you don't want to over identify with it. Meaning you don't, you don't want to adopt this kind of persona of like, I'm the healer. I'm going to help you. I'm, I'm, I know something you don't, you know, what they want is the person to pursue their dreams <laughs> and to really like wrestle with their own creative impulses so that I think if you, when you come to the profession, you're, you know, you've been through the ringer yourself, you know, it's not, 
it's not hypothetical. You know, you're not, you're not in your early twenties, you know, someone comes into your office and they have whatever huge, uh, existential anxiety about their career and somehow you're like oh yes um <laughs> you know that's that's very hard uh here let's do this exercise you know there's the, there was this idea that you go through it and so that was the thing i went to an arts uh, high school i i studied theater at the university of toronto uh and i i hit the pavement and auditioned a ton uh, you know, did a bunch of stuff that I, I loved uh, and was lucky in some ways because early on through three performances that I did, actually one of them was the one time I sang with an orchestra was the Toronto Symphony Orchestra when Mel Lassman was the mayor of Toronto. And actually I sang for Donald Trump. Weird. I sang, for, yeah, when he opened Trump Tower long before he was president, et cetera, there was this crazy evening where it, it turns out that Mel Aspen had been calling him like like all the time, come to Toronto, come to the ball. And and so there I was like singing with Toronto Symphony Orchestra and like Trump shows up late, <laughs> he comes in. And I remember his speech to this day, like he got up and and he went to the microphone and he was like, yeah, I'm here. Mel Aspen called me 30 times. Finally, his wife called me. So I said, yes. Nice to meet you, Toronto. And like he got off the stage and like, 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 like I know it was, it was just gross even back then. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but that's just a way of saying that, you know, I had these kind of cool gigs that night in the audience was a man who became a very good friend of mine named David Bookbinder, who was a fantastic musician, trumpet player, but who was a kind of empresario producer and produced this huge festival in Toronto. He took me under his wing. I took over his job as artistic director when I was. I don't know, 24. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was a working artist, but also I had this artistic directorship of this festival, which allowed me, you know, some financial security early on uh, to explore my art. And uh, I put out an album in 2008. I ended up producing at Harborfront Center for another four or five years. So I did you know, broad stuff, classical music, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I dealt with like, like food. So like bringing like farm to table stuff, bring farmers down to, to oh, Toronto and cool. the waterfront and mixing, mixing music and food. And, um, and then I got to travel and tour a whole bunch like in the States, uh, I got to see Los Angeles, a whole bunch in Chicago and New York. And it was, it was, it was fun. And then I got to go to South America uh, and do a tour. The Canada Council graciously supported me on this tour. And uh, so, yeah, so I got those. Those are fun. Uh, I actually saw a video of you serenading an older woman and she seemed to be in heaven and you really showcased those runner as lungs that you have because uh, you, held, you held this note at the end that was like unbelievable. But, I think it was uh, Br Bryna Wasserman, actually. She she was a powerhouse in Montreal. Uh, she herself was a director of uh, the Siegel Center there. Okay. And uh, uh, yeah, I got to go to their, they had a jazz festival and something else. And uh, I got to bring uh, my musicians there and that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, no, you had a, a very rock star vibe about you the way you performed, <laughs> for sure. You got some huge applause at the end. It was awesome. Um, I have a couple of fun questions for you. Uh, one, I ask everybody this season at the end of the episode, but I've got one before that because I read that you were a craft beer enthusiast, uh, much like myself. 
So I'm going to present you with a hypothetical flight of beers, four beers. Oh boy. And tell me what order you would drink them, assuming that you're drinking them in the order that you like the beers the most. So you've got a stout, an IPA, a Heffy, Heffy Weizen, and a red ale. Stout? Why? An IPA, a red ale, and a and a heffy like a Weizen beer. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, a the yeah, cool yeah, yeah, banana yeah. type thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I would oh I would start with the with the with the red. Uh, it's hard. <laughs> I would start with the hyphen of no the hyphen of I would start with. Yeah. Because uh, uh, it has that kind of fruitier like you know. Yeah, totally right. Yeah. So I, I I wouldn't want to drink that after any of the other three. <laughs> uh, and then I would go to the red ale because those red ales are interesting because they, even though they're you know often dark in color and but they're often like highly carbonated and and mm. you know not not super heavy but they certainly have a bit of a malty backbone. Malty, but, that's right. Yeah. They can give you yeah a bit more malt but nothing Caramel. too too. Uh, you know, then I would go to the to the IPA because uh, uh, it, you know, you're, then you're just getting into a bit more alcohol, a bit more bitter, you know, just full body. Right. Hoppy. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it's interesting, right? Because I, I could see an argument to maybe like depending on the stout, because stouts are not always created equal. You know, some are true, true. big, big stouts and some stouts are I mean, even Guinness is not like. You know, it's a bit it's a bit like I'm always surprised actually how carbonated it is. I'm always expecting something. You know, even I got to go to to the Guinness, like, you know, I, I gave a paper in in, in Dublin uh, a few years ago and got to have a Guinness on the rooftop of the actual brewery, oh. which was freaking awesome. And yeah. uh, uh, I felt even there like it was just very light. But no, I would I would end with the stout just because that's what I end with. <laughs> that's yeah. I mean, as I wrote this question, I sort of thought, OK, I think most people do tend to go light to dark just because. You do, I mean, stouts are somewhat of like a dessert beer. That's what we always say. You want to end the night with that because, sure. it, you know, really makes you feel kind of hefty. You don't really want to keep drinking after that. But uh, I was I was curious about the order you would pick for the other ones. And uh, hey, that was fun. So now the uh, final. I, I should tell I you, though, sorry to interrupt you, but I oh, no, for, my, for, for my birthday. Uh, and sorry for all of you that haven't been able to go to a restaurant recently. <laughs> for my birthday in April, I was taken to. Um, uh, a restaurant here in Stockholm called Vasa, uh, and because they had King King Vasa was was a, a, a kind of beloved you know uh, king here, and so I live in a place called Vasastan, Vasa city, part of the city. And the bartender was like a beer aficionado, and I I put myself in his hands, <laughs> and he just took me through the whole evening. That's I mean, it was it was I fell asleep on the couch. I mean, that hasn't happened since I was like in front of my son. Like there were pictures. <laughs> oh, but I'll tell you, when someone knows their stuff, yeah. And I mean, it was it was you know it was a dream. Like it was like, like I met journey. my. On a journey. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was so, so that, that for me is like the ideal night out is, is someone like that, that just knows what they have. Yeah. A real and one. just, just put them, put myself in their hands anyway. So that's a great question. Thanks that for asking. That sounds like that. a blast of a night. Yeah. Um, the last <laughs> question I do have for you is a, uh, one we've been asking everyone this season, which is if you could have dinner with anyone alive or dead that you've never met before, who would it be and why? Oh my God, what a great question. If I could have dinner with anybody alive or dead, who would it be? 
and why? Someone you've never met, though. I had to specify that because I didn't want people just saying, you know, relatives who had passed away and that kind of thing. I'm sure there's probably a few that are floating around and battling it out in your head right now. Maybe. Um, uh, who would I, alive or dead? That I've never met. I mean, I met Mandy Patinkin, but we didn't have dinner together. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't mind sitting down with him and having dinner. Um, yeah, we've made a few exceptions for people's answers. As long as you make a good case for it, it's all good. <laughs> Well, I mean, this is maybe a bit of a, a um, it, it's not just one person, but I, 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 uh, I would have liked to have known my grandfather's family that was taken away from him. Mm. You know, that, that, I mean, there's probably lots of, you know, creative people that I would love to kind of rack their brain around, but you know, the memory, the, the, the feeling of like people that couldn't be named, you know, and I tell this in the podcast, like my mm. grandfather couldn't, couldn't even say their names out loud. I feel like at and, this point you should give some context because yeah, people who haven't heard that it's, it's very heartbreaking stuff. Well, I mean, my, you know, the, the, it's, it's a familiar story that my, my grandfather's family, I think in the early 1930s moved from Vilnius where the family was Vilnius, Lithuania where the family had been for hundreds of years, moved for work. Uh, so they lived in a town of Molodechno in Belarus for about eight years or so, which was the lead up already by that point, I guess the Nazi party was, was uh, a thing. And, and so uh, to make a long story short, my grandfather, the, the, the Russian army, the Red Army set up camp in Molodechno. They had, a, they had barracks there. They conscripted all the young, able-bodied uh, men, including my grandfather, who was a young man at the time. Uh, and then when the war heated up and, and the Nazis basically were moving east, they took all the soldiers further east into Russia, including my grandfather, and the rest of his family were still in Molodechno when they were all shot. Good uh, uh, and I'll tell, I'll tell a story about this as an adjunct, actually, which is... which which. I'll try and be brief around, but it was very moving for me. Um, I, I tear up thinking about it. I went to a conference in Vienna and I, a lot of the psychology conferences, they have talent nights. So people that, that like me, maybe are performers in another life. And so, you know, a bunch of people are classic pianists by, you know, you know, you know, whatever. People have talents that are also professionals in other fields. So they, they, paired me with this psychiatrist, a German psychiatrist who's a piano player for this, for this evening. And uh, we wanted to have lunch together just to kind of go over music, get to know each other. And, and so we meet and we're sitting and we're talking and I don't know how we got onto it, but it turns out that his, his grandfather was in the SS. So his, his grandfather was a Nazi Holy shit! and, and his grandfather went through Belarus <laughs> Oh, and good, ended up on his way back when the Russia when the Russians were pushing back. His grandfather ended up getting shot by uh, either Jewish or Polish partisans. And we sat there and we looked at each other and we were like, "It is not inconceivable 
you know, that, that, you know, you know, my, you know, my grandfather's family was shot and his grandfather was doing the shooting. Yeah. That's messed up. And we both just like, we both held hands and we started bawling and I felt for this man because I'm sitting there and I could tell that like, I could feel the warmth that he had for his own grandfather. You know, I could like, cause he talked about, he talked about imagining all these years, this man must be in his sixties. He said to me that he'd imagined for many years his grandfather like in a bog. Like that's how he sees his grandfather's body in a bog somewhere, you know, just lying. That's always the image that he had. And you know what he told me? He said that in decades that, that this image has been fixed. And when we spoke for the first time in his life, he felt his grandfather's body move. Like he had wow. this feeling of like, like, like his grandfather's body being animated for the first time. Wow. And then we performed together. I have the video of this. We, 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 you know, he played and, and I sang at this like cool evening and, and, uh, um, you know, and so that, you know, I, I think that somewhere in me, it'd be really just cool to talk to these people. Cause I don't, it's like a void, you know, it's like something yeah. was kind of cut short and, uh, you know, their names are on his, on his tombstone, uh, in Toronto. Uh, so that's, you know, that's nice that they ended up, they ended up somewhere. But definitely. That's an amazing answer. I mean, I get it. They're lost to the ages. It would be amazing to be able to connect with them. And that story about you and, and the other gentleman, that was just magical. So thank you so much for sharing that, man. Yeah. We kept in touch. Uh, we kept, uh, we Making kept in jam, touch. So that's jam sometime. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, well, thank you so much. Uh, from the bottom of my heart, this was so fun. It was so great getting to know you, and I really had a Yeah, you too. Thank you for having me on. It's I great. know you it's got great. up early, and it's late where you are, so get to bed, man. <laughs> Super. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Take All right, care. Man. Take it nice easy. Nice to meet you. Ciao. Yeah, you too, dude. Bye.